Cause we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network What's really important about the drones today, the surveillance drones and the armed drones, particularly the long-range ones like the Predator, is that they allow this absolutely radical break between the operator, who's on one side of the world, and the operation itself on the other. Their presence terrorises men and women and children, giving rise to anxiety and psychological trauma among civilian communities. At the same time, the um, Howard government at the time was bringing in legislation around terrorism and, and, and those sort of issues. And what we wanted to bring to, to light is, in fact, we had a terror facility right in the middle of the country. Pine Gap is a joint US-Australia signals intelligence facility situated about 18 kilometres from Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. It's been there for almost 50 years and is extremely secretive about exactly what goes on behind that razor wire. Thanks to the tireless work of activists, whistleblowers and academics, we are learning more and more about the vital importance of this base to the US warfighting machine. We now know that every drone strike conducted by the US in the Middle East uses Pine Gap's communications infrastructure to find its target. We know that Pine Gap is crucial for targeting weapons and assisting the CIA in countries where the US and Australia are officially at war, like Iraq, and where they are not officially at war, like Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen and Niger. Pine Gap is the second most important US base outside the United States. The most important one is in Britain. Only one in ten of the 800 employees at Pine Gap work for the Australian government. Two in ten work for the US government, and the rest are contractors for military corporations like Raytheon, Boeing and Northrop Grumman. On this radioactive show, we'll hear from Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute at Melbourne University and Scott Birchall, Senior Lecturer in the International Relations at Deakin University. Their talks were recorded at an event titled Is the Joint Australian-US Intelligence Facility Pine Gap Legal? organised by the Melbourne University's Global Law Students Association during September 2015. We'll also hear from Sean O'Reilly, longtime peace activist and member of the group Christians Against All Terrorism, who broke in and conducted a citizen's inspection of the facility in December 2005. First up, Richard Tanter. I'm going to speak partly about Pine Gap and partly about drones, because that's the thing which gathers us here today. Uh, And I should say, I'll start by saying Pine Gap has three quite distinct separate functions. The first one, for which it was established... uh, Oh, sorry, I should say all three of them involve relationships between Pine Gap as a ground station and satellites which are sitting, orbiting the Earth at about 36,000 kilometres up there. And they are rotating around the Earth at roughly the same angular speed as does the Earth itself, which means they basically appear to just sit there and watch a particular part of the Earth. It's a little more complicated than that. That's roughly it. The reason Pine Gap was established was for um, 
signals intelligence satellites, satellites which gather all kinds of electronic transmissions, initially and principally uh, those from Soviet uh, missiles being tested, their telemetry, the radio messages they were sending back to their bases which say, I'm going at this speed, I'm getting this hot, I'm consuming so much fuel and so forth, which for the CIA, which operated Pine Gap in those days, was immensely important in calculating the capacities of Soviet nuclear uh, missiles. That continues today, of course, for China, um, but also for other countries with uh, large missiles, ranging from Japan, South Korea, North Korea, uh, through to India and Pakistan and so forth. That's very important. But those, that satellite, those satellites which have huge antennas, about 100 metres across, plus a whole forest of minor ones, can pick up not only those transmissions, but they can also pick up uh, transmissions from satellite phones on the ground going up to their own communication satellite, capturing them and then downloading the Pine Gap. That's the first. Very important. Second is quite different. It's to do with what was usually called or used to be called early warning satellites. These are satellites in the same orbit with giant uh, infrared telescopes staring down, pointing at the Earth, looking originally for the launch um, of Soviet missiles, the heat bloom that the infrared cameras would pick up. They now do that, but of course they now do a great deal more. Um, they're watching uh, uh, the afterburners of jets, they're watching the launching of cruise missiles at sea, they're watching large explosions on the surface of the Earth. Very important now for what's called battle space awareness in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's second. Third is one that we've only discovered in the last year, and we feel I'm speaking myself, myself and Des Ball and our Canadian colleague Bill Robinson felt very stupid we hadn't picked it up before because the physical evidence was there, we just didn't know what we were looking at. And this is actually the reverse, where Pine Gap, its own antennas, and one very particular one in particular, a particularly shaped, funny shaped one, are staring up at the sky looking for the transmissions down of communication satellites. Um, ones that have cell phones, internet, all sorts of things going through them. And again, they're extremely important. All three have something to do with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. All three uh, have something to do with the work with the role of drones. Richard Tanter of Melbourne University has been describing the main three functions of Pine Gap. All three are involved in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the operation of drones, which he will now explore in further detail. Let me say something about drones, because I think that's, that's partly why we're here. Um, drones are very strange. Uh, the military hates the word drones. They say it has pejorative connotations. Well, it certainly bloody does. Um, they're not new. Um, Des and I are just publishing a new book on American signals intelligence in Japan, going back to the 1950s and 60s. They were using them there to sort of test out Chinese and Soviet uh, radars then. They go back a very long way. What we have now is very different from anything that we've had before. What are particularly important are long-range drones and armed drones and the combination. To give you an idea of long-range, Australia is almost certain to buy, I suspect we're going to hear about it in the next Defence White Paper, certainly, um, what are called MQ-4C um, uh, Triton long-range maritime drones. These are things which have got a wingspan far larger than this room, and which can have a range of about 18,000 to 20,000 kilometres. They only travel at about 500 miles an hour, 500 kilometres an hour, which means that they can 
leave their base, travel for um, two or three hours, 1,000, 1,500 kilometres, and then they stay there for 20 hours or so, just watching, carrying out surveillance. And they are downloading <coughs> huge amounts of data. If you think of high-definition video and then multiply it a number of times, that's the kind of thing that they are downloading in the visible spectrum, the infrared spectrum. Some of them are picking up signals, transmission, signals intelligence. But a huge amount of data is being downloaded. When I say it's downloaded, it's actually not quite right. It's mainly uploaded to other satellites in the sky and then sent back down to the ground. Very important to think about this part of it. Because what's really new about this is really, I suppose, what the sociologists would talk about in terms of changes of space and time. That sounds very fancy, but goes back really to that metaphor we all think about, about the pimply boy in some box in Nebraska or Utah who is playing with a joystick and looking at a video screen and obliterating somebody on the other side of the world. What's important about drones is not the fact that they don't have pilots. What's really important about the drones today, the surveillance drones and the armed drones, particularly the long-range ones like, reasonably long-range ones like the Predator, is that they allow this absolutely radical break between the operator, who is on one side of the world, and the operation itself on the other. And this can go on for a long time. As I said, those drones can be up there for a very long time, for the better part of a day, before they're relieved. This completely removes two things. Firstly, human operators, which we know about, but of course it almost re also removes the risk, the risk that one of our people might get hurt while killing one of their people. This is really very, very different. And I think these changes in space and time are something that we're finding rather hard to think about. But the main thing, of course, is the role of um, Australian and American joint facilities uh, in this. Firstly, pine gap and targeting. There is no doubt whatsoever that the signals intelligence capacities and the communications uh, interception capacities of pine gap are being used to contribute information which is then becomes part of the targeting mix uh, for uh, drone uh, assassinations not just drone assassinations, also by um, squads of special operations forces and CIA forces, but particularly uh, by drones. Firstly, in countries where the United States and Australia is conducting war operations uh, with legal sanctions, i.e. Iraq and Afghanistan. But secondly, in places where, where those countries, and particularly the United States and certainly Australia, um, is not in countries with which they are not at war. In other words, Pakistan... Which is being done where drones are being used to an extraordinary level, Somalia, the Yemen, and a number of parts of uh, the northern part of Central Africa, particularly in the Niger area. And the United States has expanded its drone bases from the Seychelles through to uh, um, uh, Niger, and they are using them a great deal there in war against terror or simply counterinsurgency operations in another language. My view is that uh, the use of drones constitutes uh, state terrorism. It enables state terrorism. From what the, um, the musician Roger Waters 
has called the bravery of being out of range. Um, and as Richard said, there's, there's a number of unique aspects to drones. The, the no risk of pilot, being, of pilot casualties or, um, or the capture of pilots in enemy zones. Uh, so it's based, drones have a way of in partially removing human agency from the conduct of war, although, of course, uh, further down the food chain, that's not the case. Uh, the attacks are anonymous in the sense that uh, um, they're very difficult to predict. Uh, the risk factor to those that are targeting is limited. Um, the accuracy of the drones is claimed to be their strongest uh, aspect. The surgical nature of these strikes is said to be the um, said to elevate uh, the conduct of war to a new level of precision. Uh, but of course, we're also talking about predominantly uh, in in the news anyway uh, the summary executions and extrajudicial extra uh, executions. Now, there is a debate within the academic fraternity and others uh, about whether, in fact, uh, drone warfare constitutes state terrorism. Um, I'll quote uh, Noam Chomsky, and I'll give you some other uh, alternative explanations as well. According to uh, Chomsky, a drone strike is a terror weapon. We don't talk about it that way, it, it, but it is. Just imagine you're walking down the street and you don't know whether in five minutes there is going to be an explosion across the street from some place up in the sky that you can't see. Somebody will be killed, and whoever is around will be killed. Maybe you'll be injured if you're there. That is a terror weapon. It terrorises villages, regions, huge areas. It's the most massive terror campaign going on by a long shot. Uh, Chomsky's argument is uh, endorsed by a uh, number of commentators. Uh, uh, Joachim uh, Hagopian is a, a prominent uh, author in the field in the United States, has also argued a similar uh, position. Um, Colin White, who's a professor of international relations at Sydney University, takes a different position and argues that, in fact, categorising uh, drones as terror weapons um, is a mistake because it um, diverts legal responsibility away from the, uh, those who perpetrate the issue. But clearly... Um, People who have experienced World War, I, uh, World War II with V1 and V2 bombers know that the um, nature of these weapons is to incite terror. It's part of the function. And I'll quote from a, um, a joint 2012 report from the law schools of Stanford University and New York University who, looked, uh, who produced a, a document called Living Under Drones. And they document, quote, that US drone strikes drone strike policies cause considerable and underaccounted for harm to the daily lives of ordinary citizens. Beyond death and physical injury, specifically they hover 24 hours a day over communities in northwest Pakistan, which was the focus of the report, striking homes, vehicles and public spaces without warning. Their presence terrorises men and women and children, giving rise to anxiety and psychological trauma among civilian communities. The uh, journalist Steve Cole, who's written a number of books on uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, also writes regularly, I think, for the New Yorker magazine, said that being attacked by a drone is not the same as being bombed by a jet. With drones, there is typically a much longer prelude to violence. Above North uh, Waziristan, 
Drones circle for hours or even days before striking. People below looked up to watch the machines hovering at about 20,000 feet, capable of unleashing fire at any moment, like dragon's breath. Drones may kill relatively few, but they terrify many more. According to one of the tribal leaders in North Waziristan, they turned the people into psychiatric patients. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri land and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is Scott Birchall speaking on the morality of drones and their impact on civilians as weapons of terror. Let's get back to it. If we're having a debate about what terrorism is, of course, we can go endlessly into new definitions. But let's take the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff and their annual counter-terrorism report, defining terrorism as the unlawful use of violence or threat of violence, often motivated by religious, political or other ideological beliefs, to instill fear and coerce governments or societies in pursuit of goals that are usually political. So there can't be much doubt um, that... Um, those, the use of drones is not just a technological... Uh, it does not just have te- technological objectives. The use of drones, particularly in, the, in unlawful killings, arbitrary executions, is designed to instil terror in the population, and that's pretty much what it does. Now, if we take responsibility for the, the, what our governments do on our behalf, and, uh, in other words, if we're... We are responsible for the anticipated consequences of... Uh, our actions, and that extends uh, to the actions of the state that we vote for, to the extent we have participation in the political system, then uh, we are also responsible uh, for these actions. Uh, There's no, in my view, no uh, way to evade um, our moral responsibility. As Richard said, drones are are used extensively in uh, Pakistan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Somalia, and now increasingly in Syria. Uh, the ones that the United States use are typically, t- uh, I think, targeted from a base in the Nevada desert, hence the, dis- the, the removal of human agency from the immediate uh, impact of the actual deployment of the drones. There seems to be little or very almost no oversight or accountability for their use, because of the secrecy that surrounds the programs. Uh, The targets are picked in the United States' case daily by President Obama and his national security team. Um, According to that report that I quoted from the law schools at Stanford um, and uh, New York University, in Pakistan, those drone programs kill one terrorist for every 50 fatalities. That's the, that's the figure that they have. One terrorist per 50 fatalities. Um, the 49, presumably innocent civilians. The number of civilians, however, is not known. The number of civilian casualties is not known because they've been redefined uh, in official terms. Um, according to uh, uh, an edict from President Obama, all military-age males in a strike zone, are now defined as combatants. 
Hence, of course, the low casualty figures in terms of civilians that are cited. If you just redefine the, the population as any uh, male that happens to be in the area as a legitimate target, um, then, of course, you do limit collateral damage by simply ex expanding the circle. Um, but, um, in other words, what you find in the literature is that suspected militants, the phrase sus suspected militants occurs again and again uh, to describe uh, the, an, a drone attack, which, of course, covers almost every possibility. They may be, they may not be, um, but uh, it's almost impossible to verify. And when, in the, the odd occasion when the casualties are verified and proven to be civilians, this comes a considerable amount of time after the event. Um, and uh, this is, I guess, uh, one of the problems of how do you report these matters to the public and give them real-time information when, of course, you're not aware of the nature of the strikes and where they're going to occur. My name's Sean O'Reilly. I live here in Brisbane. Um, been involved in in civil rights issues up here in, in Queensland and, and, and anti-war peace movement stuff for you know since the seventies. So um, yeah, I've got quite a history of involvement in these issues, I guess. Yeah. Great. So if you can take us back about ten years now to a yeah. protest at Pine Gap involving six people, including yourself, which is one of very few. Uh, direct actions that have taken taken place at Pine Gap. Can you tell us a little bit about it? As, as we know, that um, I mean, Pine Gap came into existence in the late 60s, and we know that it had been very much involved in in the US um, strike, first strike capacity. That it, you know was of major concern during the uh, Cold War. What we became con concerned with, we had the uh, the uh, invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. And we had the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And what was becoming um, aware to us is that Pine Gap also played um, an instrumental role um, in the targeting of sites um, and in the ongoing um, invasion of both these countries. And mm. So we wanted to bring that focus to Pine Gap because, uh, I mean, this facility is situated smack in the middle of Australia. And it ties Australia very much in, in into that in, in, into all of that, you know, in, into those ongoing invasions, uh, mm. and and we're still seeing the, the impact of that now. So we wanted to bring a lot of focus on that. At the same time, the um, Howard government at the time was bringing in legislation around terrorism and, and and those sort of issues. And what we wanted to bring to, to light is, that in fact, we had a terror facility right in the middle of the country, and we're trying to bring focus to that. Mm. And, uh, and and a lot of secrecy exists around and always, has always um, uh, uh, um, existed around Pine Gap. And so our idea was to go in there as uh, the people's representative to uh, inspect the facility. <laughs> mm. So that was, our, that was, the, that was sort of the, the broad idea that we had, yeah. And how did you go? How was the how was the, the inspection? Uh, yeah, well, it's quite amazing because um, we arrived on the Monday evening, and you know this is a, a top secret base. They knew we were coming. They knew we were there. 
yet within side three and a half days we had um, two of the group because four went in um, Brian Law and, and, and uh, Donna Mulhern and Jim Downing and Adele Zoldi. Yeah, two of our uh, group had actually infiltrated the, uh, got into the facility, um, which was a remarkable effort um, mm. by by our group, and um, it highlighted uh, that this um, facility is not um, as safe as I'd like to think. Mm. Um, but also, we were just trying to, you know, shine a light also on on the secrecy of the base and, and the fact that the Australian people, have, you know, since the, like since the nineteen sixties, have been um, denied information as to to what this facility does, and it just exists in a cloud of secrecy and and subservience of the Australian government on both sides mm. to American foreign policy. There were quite serious repercussions for for the group, and it became oh, yeah. quite public after that. Can you tell me a bit about the sort of the aftermath of the action? Yeah, I mean, the four were charged with quite uh, serious offences, and, and they went to trial. I think it was in June two thousand and eight. There was a jury trial, um, where and at which we um, tried to bring to light the the. Um, the involvement of this facility in the ongoing uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. The the four were convicted in the end. They subsequently did some prison time the following early the following year in Darwin. Mm. But subsequent to that, we had a win and an appeal that was run by Ron Murphy, who was an ex uh, federal court judge. He ran an appeal, and and they won an appeal around those charges. The, the impact of that is that, the, is that the, the federal government has changed the laws around Pine Gap, imposing much heavier sentences. But um, I think that we have to be very aware that this facility uh, continues to exist. Both sides of politics in Australia refuse to answer the, the, the important questions about what, um, uh, what it's actually doing. And we know, uh, we know in the past that, uh, that it actually... Um, there's a lot of spying of, of, of uh, interception of, of telephone calls uh, within Australia mm. and uh, internationally. And there's been yeah. some more uh, information coming out recently with leaks from Edward Snowden showing the importance yep. of Pine Gap to yep. all of the drone strikes in the Middle East. That's right, yeah, and that's what I mean. It, it, I guess it just reinforces what the importance of, of our action of the day when, when, you know, all these years later, mm. um, it can be confirmed by somebody like Edward Snowden has such a, a, a knowledge of, 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 this, of this area. We have to take it seriously. We have to take mm. it seriously that, that we're, we're involved in this dirty war. That was Sean O'Reilly, longtime peace activist, speaking with us about the direct action that he was involved in with five other people, busting in and conducting a citizen's inspection of Pine Gap. Thanks go to Sean and our earlier guests, Richard Tanter and Scott Birchall, for their information and insights. If you'd like to hear their entire talks from the event organised by the Global Law Students Association at Melbourne Uni, get in touch with us by emailing radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are The Radioactive Show. This program is produced at 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast all across these stolen lands we call Australia on the Community Radio Network. The music you've heard on this show is Corruption Dub by Combat Wombat and The Eighth from the Free Music Archive. 
I'm Jem Rommel. Thanks for listening and let's organise to expose Pine Gap. Corruption of the highest degree Affecting everybody Outlandishly Overland and sea Corruption To the teeth, feet, grief to the village. I'm here to supply our greed, how it works. Enter the enterprise, alert to get the perks. 